we want to start into First Peter, but I'm going to pray for us as we, we open up our, our scripture today. Uh, Father God, we thank you so much for your faithfulness, God, and I just pray that you would open up our heart and our minds to your word, that we'd be strengthened by your spirit, Father, and in difficult times that we could rely on the rock of our salvation, um, which is Jesus Christ, and the identity that we have in you um, that we don't, isn't by our own works, Lord, but is by your grace um, and by the work of Christ. And we ask you this in Jesus' name, amen. So 1 Peter is a book, um, like uh, Dan was saying with the book of James, there was a lot of persecution and trouble with the church. 1 Peter is no different. And most of the um, letters that you write in, or read in the Bible, they're happening to Christians who are immensely struggling and going through very difficult times. Um, 1 Peter, in, uh, specifically, they were um, being dispersed throughout the region in which they lived, that Rome had had a great fire. They were blaming the Christians for kind of the problems in their community. Christians were being imprisoned. They were being martyred. They were losing their jobs, losing their families, losing their church communities. That this was a very, very difficult time when Peter is writing to Christians. And it's not just one church, but it was Christians who were scattered over an entire region. What's interesting about this letter that we're going to look at here in the introduction is Peter and his encouragement to them, you might think that he's about to give them this awesome strategy and how they can overcome their troubles. But what he does, he brings them back to the fundamentals and the basics of their faith. And I know for me in the times of the most the most suffering that I've had or the most confusion I've had, the most difficult times I've had, God has brought me back to the simplicity and the power of the gospel about who, what really my identity is in Jesus. And why that's so important is because our identity in Christ that we'll look at today, it's not by works. It's not something that you have done, but it's something that Jesus Christ has paid for. And through that paid for identity, we have power to work through the sufferings and the conflicts and the troubles that we experience in life. I wanna read 2 Corinthians chapter 1, 8 through 11 of a description of what Paul was experiencing as a servant of Christ. And in this season, you may relate to this in some ways. I think it's powerful, the truth that Paul relied on. In verse eight, it says, for we do not want you to be ignorant brothers of our trouble, which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves that we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead, who delivered us from a great, so great a death and does deliver us in whom we trust that he will still deliver us. You also helping together in prayer for us that thanks may be given by many persons on our behalf for the gift granted to us through many. See, even the apostle Paul who was a man full of faith, planted churches, rose people from the dead. He got in a place in his life where the pressures of life were coming in on him so strongly that it says he even despaired of life, even maybe wished himself to be dead that he could be with Christ. But what he learned in that season wasn't just to say it was okay or move forward, but he learned in that season was the trust in the power of God that raises the dead. And that's what I hope that we can come to together as a church, that we can look at the identity of Christ that's laid out in 1 Peter um, verses one and two and really draw strength from these promises. They're simple promises. And a lot of times we want more information. We want uh, more truth to encourage us. But Peter found that the most encouraging thing he could do to very suffering and hurting Christians was to remind them of their identity in Christ that he had paid for. 
And we think about fundamentals. I think a lot of times they can get mundane. They can get boring. Um, you know, when I was going to uh, play football in college, it doesn't really what, matter what level of sport um, you play in college, whether that be um, Division three, Division two, II, Division one. But when you get to college, most athletes in college were one of the best players on their team. And what you find is in college, everyone's trying to rely on their athletic ability, the things that are kind of God-given, their strength, their speed. But pretty soon you realize everyone's strong and everyone's fast. And what separates the players who are really good from the players who don't get to play is typically the fundamentals, the basics. But when you're a young, prideful freshman wanting to earn uh, playing time on your team, you kind of have to get your butt kicked a couple of times to realize how important the fundamentals are. And again, I think this is really true in our spiritual lives. A lot of times we don't realize how much maybe we've been missing the fundamentals or how much I've been distracted by other things until life gets really hard. And then God brings us back to the fundamentals and we thank God and we find a greater joy, a greater peace, a greater worship in focusing on our gospel identity found in Jesus Christ. So if you turn with me to second, or sorry, first Peter, we'll start in this with these first few verses. Chapter one, verse one and two. And on your way in, if you guys didn't get one of these, there's a bunch of them on your way out. Um, it just has six truths of our identity in Christ that we're gonna talk about today. So I encourage you, if you didn't get one of these, grab them on your way out. And these are things you can meditate on this week and hopefully draw encouragement from. So first Peter chapter one, verse one through two says this. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontius, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and sanctification of the Spirit for obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. Grace to you and peace be multiplied. We're gonna break down this scripture, but ultimately what Peter's doing, he's reminding them of who they are. He's reminding them of their identity in Christ and they serve a sovereign God. They've, they're in the dispersion, which just means they've been dispersed. They've been scattered because of the persecution that they are experiencing. And the first thing that he calls them, he calls them pilgrims. And in some versions, it may say um, foreigners. It may say exiles. But what this word means is they were living in a place they weren't priorly living. So they were in their hometowns because of the persecution, they've been scattered. But he's not just talking about physically, he's talking about spiritually, is that these people as Christians were pilgrims. This earth, it's not our home. That this, this church is not our home. Our jobs are not our home. That all these things are temporal things that God can use. But we have to remember we're pilgrims. We're just passing through ultimately to our eternal home. This word also has the connotation of um, going to a specific place or region, knowing you're not gonna be there very long. So if I told you guys I was taking a trip to Hawaii for a week, I got there for a week and I bought a house and I bought a, a year's worth of groceries, that'd be kind of silly, right? If I'm only gonna be there for a week. You might think, well, maybe Luke's planning on staying longer. Well, the reason that would be silly because I know I'm only gonna be there for a week. So I'm not gonna invest all this time and money in an area or time and place that I know I'm not gonna actually be able to use. And that's kind of the perspective that Peter is bringing back the, the, the Christians to is guys, as hard as this life is, we gotta um, remember, even if we live this life for 60, 70, 80 years, it's such a small amount of time compared to eternity. That remember your home is not here, but your home is ultimately in heaven. So he reminds them, you're pilgrims. And as we are pilgrims, as we're passing through this life, what happens is, is we get a new perspective. 
Our perspective is not about this life, it's about a heavenly home. And because we have a perspective on a heavenly home, that develops new priorities in our life. When we are focused on heaven, we have different priorities. When we're focused on earth and earthly things, that is also going to shape our priorities. If you turn with me to Philippians um, chapter three, I think uh, the apostle Paul gives us a good example of what this looks like. Um, this will be on your screen as well. You can turn there on to, in your Bible. It's Philippians chapter three, verse seven and eight. And he says, but what, th- what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yes, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish or trash that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness, which is from God by faith. See, Paul was saying the things that used to be so valuable to me, now that I have a new home, now that I'm a pilgrim, now that my home's in heaven, the things that used to be so valuable to me, you know, they're not that valuable anymore. And I actually thought of this story in between services. I didn't share this earlier, but um, I always remind when I was first saved, I was at a track meet and um, I'll spare you the details, but it was about 20 minutes before I was supposed to run my race and I had the opportunity to lead a friend to Christ on the phone. And the old me would have never picked up the phone because I was at a track meet and I, what mattered most was winning the race in my event. But God opened the door for me to share the gospel and lead one of my friends to Christ. And by the time we were done, I had about 10 minutes, five minutes before my race. So I'm throwing on my shoes, running over to get done with my race. I actually ended up running one of my fastest times I'd ever run. And uh, we won the conference championship as a team. And my whole life, all I was focused on at that point was sports. That was what was so valuable to me was sports. But leaving that track event that day, I could care less that I ran my fastest time. And I could care less that we won the conference championship. What was so valuable to me was seeing my friend come to Christ. That was so much better that God had shifted my priority. My priority was no longer about me and my success, but my priority was about eternal things. And so as we become pilgrims in this life, um, we have a new priority because our home is in heaven. The second thing that Peter encourages them with, and this is true of anyone who has accepted Christ. These aren't things that you grow into over time. This is your identity. It takes time sometimes to live it out, but these are the things that are true about us because of solely what Jesus Christ has done for you and me. The second thing that he says is that we are elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. Now, this word has been debated for a long time. We did a four-week class on this with Pathfinder. You could get more information. But in really simple terms, this is an Old Testament word. And who was the Old Testament group of people that were elect or were chosen by God? The Jews, right? Israel, they, they were chosen by God. And the reason they were chosen by God is that they would be his vessel to the world, that people would know who God was because of the nature of Israel and that he would have a special people that he could grow with and love and that they would know him. But Israel was God's chosen people primarily by birth. You were born an Israelite. But in the New Testament, we're not born into the, children, or the, the nation of God or God's chosen people, but we come into God's people by faith that we believe in the Son of God, we believe in the invitation of God extended to us by grace. And because we receive that by faith, we are 
You are God's elect. You're God's chosen. And he's chosen you and he's elected you for a purpose. That purpose isn't just for salvation, but that purpose is to be a part of his plan now that we are chosen. I think of, for some reason, I get the picture of um, playing sports as a kid on the playground and you pick teams. So you choose someone because you, you want to win. You know, you pick that person, whatever it may be, that you're choosing them for a purpose to play the game. And God is choosing us for a purpose to be a part of his winning plan for salvation. So we are elected, we're accepted by God, but before we can be accepted, um, what, we, what we're gonna find is we have to be invited. It's not by our works that we come to God. It's not first by our faith, but primarily we come to God through his grace. He extends his grace to us and that opens up the door for us to receive his invitation by faith. So if you turn with me to John um, chapter six, we're gonna see God extending his invitation and working on our hearts. And just to be clear, God is extending his invitation to everyone. God has opened up his grace. Jesus Christ has died for the sins of the world. And through his death, resurrection, that he has extended an invitation to anyone who would call upon his name. No matter how deep our sin, God offers a way out. And in John chapter 6, verse 43 and 44, he says this. Jesus therefore answered and said to them, do not murmur among yourselves, No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him and I'll raise him up the last day. So God is doing a work in our heart. I saw it in my life. God was doing a work in my heart for 20 years. He was working on me until I was willing and ready to receive the gospel by faith. And the way I think about this is if I wanted to go to see the president and I just showed up to the White House and I knocked on the door and they weren't answering. So I started to tamper with the windows and try to get into the White House What's gonna happen to me? Rested, right? Not gonna make it very far. I'm gonna get arrested. But if I have a personal invitation from the president, I'm gonna be able to get in, right? Because he has invited me. He knows me. He knows I'm coming. And that's what God has done. We're sinners. We fall short of God's glory. I don't deserve to approach God just because I want to. But because God is gracious, because he's loving, he's extended a personal invitation to each and every one of us. And he's confirmed that by sending his son who would die on the cross for the full payment for our sins. So the first thing that God begins to do, he starts to to, um, draw us in by his grace, not only so that we can be saved, but so that we can live out the purpose that he's given us. If you turn with me to Ephesians chapter two, I think this scripture really, it really simplifies what this purpose can look like. Cause I think sometimes if you ask someone, what's your purpose? They're like, uh, it's a big question. You know, what has God called you to? It can seem like a big question, but Ephesians chapter two, verse 10, I think gives us some pretty good instruction on where we can start. It says, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. So who prepares the works that we should do to glorify God? God does, right? He's preparing us so that we can walk in the calling that he has on our life. And so we can really overcomplicate things. We can force things. But I wanna encourage you that every single day we should wake up knowing God has an eternal purpose for me today. And as I trust him and as I obey him, I'm making an eternal impact that God has had planned before the foundation of the world to glorify him and to love him. 
So in Christ, we know that we have a new home. Therefore, we have new priorities as pilgrims. But secondly, as God's elect, we have been chosen. Therefore, I have eternal value and eternal purpose every single day. And that should be exciting. That should bring joy into our heart. I get to serve God for an eternal purpose every single day, regardless of my circumstance. The third thing that um, Peter hits on here is that this is all done according to the foreknowledge of God. So this isn't as much about us, but this is about God, that we serve a God who is sovereign. And God being sovereign means he is in control of all circumstances. Um, I wanna read um, Isaiah 45, uh, verse seven. I think that's on the screen. And especially in difficult times, like many of us are in, um, it, can be, it can be confusing on what's God doing and, and how can we understand it. And God makes a, a simple statement here. He says, I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and I create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. See, no matter what circumstance we find ourselves in, God's at work and God's in control. And I can only imagine the disciples who were following Jesus. They saw Jesus wash people's feet. They saw Jesus love people. They saw Jesus preach the word. They saw him do miracles. It was, would have been really hard for them to understand as Jesus hung on a cross and was being crucified that God was still in control. That would not have made a lot of sense to them. But because we serve a God who's sovereign, we know that was a part of God's plan and God was in complete control as Jesus Christ was crucified on the cross. Romans 8.28 is a kind of a famous scripture. Um, many of us know it, it's kind of flows around Christian circles and it says that all things, and we know that all things work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. One thing I wanna encourage us with today is no matter what we go through, we have a promise right here. Not that all things would go our way or we'd always feel good, but we have a promise that if we love God and we commit ourselves to his purpose, he's gonna work all things for our good every single time. No matter how bad it is, no matter how tough it may seem, God will work these things ultimately for our good. And I know when I was in Colorado and went through some um, really tough times in ministry and was very discouraged and burnt out and struggling, um, what I saw God do over time that was really impactful and encouraging to me is God used all of those painful things for good. Some things people did to me, I didn't have any control over. God still used those things for good. Some things were just circumstantial. God still used those things for good. Some of the reason I suffered was because of my own sin because of my own bad decisions. And even God used those things for good and used those as opportunities for me to apologize, for me to repent, for me to learn. That God used every single hard thing that I felt like literally about killed me. He used all of those things ultimately for my good, that I could know him and that I could love him. And that's what happens when we serve a sovereign God, we get a new definition of good. Our definition of good changes because we're trusting that God is in control. Um, 2 Corinthians chapter 4 through 16 is, for me personally, a scripture I've kind of been trying to, well, I had it memorized at one point and I forgot it. That's how scripture memory goes sometimes if you've ever tried it. So kind of re-memorizing this scripture, um, 2 Corinthians 4, 16 through 18 has been pretty encouraging to me. He says, therefore, 
we do not lose heart because in tough times, it's easy to lose heart. Even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, is working for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. I just want to encourage you, no matter what we go through, no matter how hard our situation can be, nothing is wasted from God. Nothing's wasted. And if we would commit ourselves to seeing things from God's perspective in eternal light, um, we won't lose heart. Doesn't mean our heart won't feel crushed, but we won't lose heart. God will give us the hope and encouragement to continue to serve him and fulfill the call that he's placed on our life. So as we serve a sovereign God, we have a new definition of hope. And this can give us a heart of gratefulness, a heart of worship and a heart of thankfulness that God is doing much more than we can see. The fourth thing that Peter encourages these believers, that's true of all believers that have trusted in Jesus Christ, is he encourages them that this is done according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, but it's done in the sanctification of the Spirit. And this is, I think, so important to understand kind of what this word means, that when we are saved, God sees us as if we've never sinned. We've been covered by the blood of Christ. But sanctification is the lifelong process in becoming more like Jesus. Every day, God wants us to become more and more like Christ. And the number one plan for your life from God is for us to become like Jesus. That's the thing he cares about most. It's not always our happiness. It's not always our comfort, but what God is shaping and molding us to be more like Jesus so that we can fellowship with him, that we can love him and we can walk with him in a deeper way. But the question then becomes, um, if that's God's purpose for us, how do we do that? How do we become more like Christ through tough circumstances? And I, I believe there's two main foundational truths that without these two things, it's impossible to please God. And maybe there's more if there is, you can tell me about it after the service, but I believe there's two main ways biblically that without these two things, we cannot please God. The first one is in Hebrews. So as we go through tough times, this has to be our focus so that we can become more like Jesus. Hebrews 11 verse six says this. I'll let you turn. I hear some pages turning. Hebrews eleven six should be on the screen as well. He says, but without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he who comes to God must believe that he is and that he is a rewarder of those who diligently seek him. In order to please God, it has to be built in faith. Faith comes from trusting God's word, trusting God's promises. If we're just doing things in our own strength, leaning on our own understanding, even if we're, what we're trying to do is what we believe is right. If it's not coming from faith, it's impossible to please God. Romans 14, 23 says that without faith, whatever we do is actually sin. That, that obeying God by faith, not by our strength, not by our morals, but by trusting God's word and obeying him beyond what we can understand, that's what, that's what pleases God, especially when we're suffering. So that has a lot to do with knowing the promises of God and standing firm on them. But the second one is found in 1 Corinthians 13, very famous scripture used in a lot of weddings about love. 1 Corinthians 13, one through three. 
that in tough times there can be conflict, a desire to be right, a desire to bicker, argue, all sorts of things. 1 Corinthians 13, 1 through 3 tells us um, another thing that's um, essential in pleasing God. Verse 1, he says, Though I speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, I have become sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. And though I have the gift of prophecy and understanding all mysteries and all knowledge, and though I have all faith so that I can remove mountains, but have not love, I am nothing. And though I bestow all my goods to feed the poor, and though I give my body to be burned, but have not love, it profits me nothing. See, this is so powerful because I could stand up here and give a good sermon, tell you guys biblical things. If I'm not doing it because I love you and I love God, it might sound good to you, but to God, it's sounding brass and a clanging cymbal. And in maybe modern terms, that would just be, it's annoying. That's really what that means. If you study, it's an annoying, obnoxious sound without love. And so without love, no matter how good the things we're doing, it can't be pleasing to God unless we're doing it out of love. You know, he even says we could offer our body to be burned as a martyr. I could go to the Middle East, plant 10 churches, lead revivals, lead people to Christ and be burned at the stake for doing so. But if I didn't do it out of love, the scripture tells me that it's nothing, that it's not pleasing to God. And although God may use it to impact other people, ultimately I fall short of doing what God has called me to do without doing it in love. So Peter encourages the believers that the spirit, of work, the spirit of God is at work in you to make you more like Jesus Christ every single day. And what this does for me is it gives me hope that even in my circumstance, God can change my heart. He can change my mind. He can change my perspective. I can always have hope because the spirit of God is working in my heart through faith and through love. It's a promise that we have from God and this gives us a joy and obeying him and following his work. The final promise that we see here is not only are we sanctified in the spirit, but this is for obedience for us to follow God and the sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And this is kind of what brings us all together that we'll close in is the sprinkling of the blood of Christ is talking about the continual forgiveness for the believer. There's the day of the atonement that Christ paid for our sins in full, but every single day we're in, forg we're in need of forgiveness, right? Every single day we can make mistakes. Every single day we can get off track. That there's a promise for the believer, no matter how far we've fallen, we can go astray, we can rebel, we can backslide. But the moment that we're willing to confess our sin, to turn back to God, that he's there. He's a shepherd that leaves the 99 sheep to go and get the one that we are sprinkled, we are covered in the blood of Christ for continual forgiveness. And this is so that we can obey God, not out of just fear, not because we want God to love us, but we can obey God because we're loved. We can obey God because of his grace and his mercy and his nearness to us. That it's the fellowship with God that matters. I'd heard this said once that it's easy to do things for God all the time, but that God, um, Justin preached, or taught this in our spiritual gift class, that God wants us to serve because he wants to serve with us. It's a way that we get to know God. God doesn't really need my help. Um, I'm stealing Justin's teaching. He used this in the teaching as well. But Sarah and I were putting up some curtains in the new baby room and Stone had a hammer. And he wanted to help us, you know. And it's like, so I'm telling him things he can kind of tap that hammer with. And that's just because we want to spend time with him. 
Stone, no offense if he listens to this someday, but Stone is no help in putting up the curtains at three years old. But we want to spend time with him, so we include him in that. And that's very much how God views us, that he wants us to help and he uses us. But the primary reason God wants to use us is because he wants to know us and he wants to spend time with us and he wants to see us grow through using our spiritual gifts. If you turn with me to 1 John chapter 1, um, verse 9, we studied this a few um, months ago in our series through 1 John. But I think it's an important reminder for us. 1 John 1, 9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That we're covered in the blood of Christ and any time we would confess our sins to Christ in sincerity, that he'll forgive us and he'll cleanse us and it's as if he never, it never happened. We don't have to earn our way back to him, but he's given us the right to be his kids because of the blood of Christ. Last scripture I want to look at is John chapter 14 that talks about how intimate God really wants to be with us. John chapter 14, verse 23 and 24 says, Jesus answered and said to him, if anyone loves me, so we talk about this love, he'll keep my word and my father will love him and we will come to him and make our home with him. He who does not love me does not keep my words and the word which you hear is not mine, but the father's who sent me. A convicting passage that talks about loving God requires obedience, but also a comforting passage that God desires not just to be around us, not just to be with us, but to live in us that God wants to make his home inside of us as we receive his gift of salvation through faith. And what 1 Peter 1 and 2 finishes with and we'll close for today as he says that, uh, as I turn there here, in verse 1 and 2, after he's got done describing all of these core identity truths of the believer in Christ, he encourages us with grace to you and peace be multiplied. I think if we had a show of hands, how many of you guys want to have grace and peace in your life? Right? Woo, everybody. We all want grace and peace in our life. How do we get it? Not by our works, not by our striving, not by our effort, but by receiving what Jesus Christ has done for us and actually believing in the God-given identity that he's given us apart from our works. Believing that I have a new heavenly home. Therefore, I have new priorities. Believing that I've been chosen, I've been elected by God. Therefore, I have eternal value and eternal purpose every single day. By believing that I serve a sovereign God, therefore, I have a new definition of good and a grateful heart. By believing that I have the spirit of God, therefore, I have hope to change and I can have joy in my obedience, regardless of circumstances. By believing that I've been washed by Christ's blood, Therefore, I walk with God daily. By believing that I am new in Christ, therefore, I can have grace and peace in my heart every day. So I wanna invite the um, worship team up. And if you've never um, taken the step to receive Christ, I pray just as I'm praying that you could make that commitment to, to, to God, that it just is a turning away from our sin, placing our faith in the finished work in Christ alone. There's nothing that I can do to earn my salvation but by the free gift of Christ that I can enter into a relationship with God.
So Father, I thank you for your faithfulness. God, I thank you for the identity that you've given us that's not circumstantial. God, we can go through very hard times in life, Lord. We can be persecuted. We can be misunderstood, Lord. We can suffer. But in the midst of all that, none of these things change because they're not based on me. They're not based on the people here. They're based on you, God. And we thank you that you're the author and the finish of our faith. Lord, we thank, thank you that you love us and not just love us, but you're changing us. You're working on our heart every day. And I pray that no matter how slow the process may seem, God, that we would trust that you are at work and you are changing us. And if we're in a season where we've turned away from you, Lord, if anyone's here in that state, Lord, I just pray that you'd be drawing their heart by grace. God, they would know that you love them and that you'd accept them back, Lord, if they would just ask for your help. Lord, if they would call out to you by faith and turn from their sin. So I just thank you, Lord. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.